Hey, welcome to another episode of Clear Light Connections, where we talk to the people behind the businesses of Bay Area Houston, proudly sponsored by UTMB Health. Special guest today, Dr. Uh, Jeff Temple, and you are the wearer of many hats at UTMB. Please please tell us what, what you do there and, and what your main jobs are. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And uh, uh, recently, I became the Vice Dean for Research and Scholarship at UTMB School of Nursing. I'm also a professor and licensed psychologist, and finally, I'm the founding director of our Center for Violence Prevention. That, that last one, uh, you've, you've found, you helped found that. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's uh, uh, something that I have wanted to do since I joined UTMB in 2007 and really had my eyes toward developing a center to really focus on preventing violence. And, and what that means is, uh, from a research perspective, so studying stuff that, you know, interventions, prevention programs, causes, contributors, consequences, predictors, all that sort of stuff, while also being a resource for community. So if, if someone wants to do a, you know, something on workplace violence that they can call us in, or a school wants uh, something on dating violence or bullying, they can call us in. And then also education so that we train the next generation of uh, researchers and educators on uh, on how to prevent violence, how to recognize violence. Yeah, and I, I guess that's a big thing for UTMB since it, it is an education-based institution. It, it really is, and I, and I think that's one of the reasons they were so supportive of uh, developing this center is that, you know, we get to train and teach medical students and uh, nursing students and public health experts all on the importance of violence. And, and it really is, unfortunately, an important topic. You know, we, we talk about things like infectious diseases and, and COVID, for example, which, you know, shut down the world. Well, if you really look at the problem of violence, it kills scores more people than COVID ever did. And, and, and that's saying something. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that UTMB is taking a stand and, and at the forefront of violence prevention because it is that important. Well, and I feel like UTMB has made this commitment to, to looking at medicine more holistically, including, like you said, uh, violence and, and psychology and things like that. They, they really seem to be taking a more holistic approach. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, I, I'll say this. I, I do not think that was the case for any institutions, not just UTMB, as early as a couple decades ago. I think it is more recently that we started to recognize uh, academic medical students more globally the interaction between the mind and the body that you can't focus on one without focusing on the other. It's, you know, it's really silly to try to treat, say, for instance, diabetes, but then don't do anything about uh, goal-directed behavior or how to change or, you know, uh, mental health. It just doesn't work. Now, so it seems to me that probably in the last 10 years, mental health has come to the forefront and it's finally getting not only the recognition and attention it deserves, but it, it, it's becoming more acceptable to talk about it. Absolutely. The, the stigma has definitely decreased. I mean, just in my, you know, two decades of, of being a psychologist where no one would talk about it to now where, it, you know, with, with teens, for instance, or young adults, it's almost an anathema to not have a therapist or a counselor. I mean, this, this seems to be more of the norm than it used to be where it was, oh, you're seeing someone, you have to see someone. And we're even seeing it with 
you know, men, I think, uh, while still lagging behind women in, in, in many respects. Uh, as, they, as I'm constantly reminded. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I even think that is in the case where men are becoming, uh, you know, less stigmatized in terms of seeing mental health providers. And then people of color who have traditionally, especially like black men, uh, you know, it was just not talked about at all. Mm-hmm. And then more recently it has. I actually think that the COVID was a, uh, the silver lining of it was recognizing how important mental health is. You know, w- what we saw after a year of losing our social connections and, and sort of our routines is how we were just on the precipice of falling apart as, as globally and as individuals. And I think that this really shined the light on the importance of emotional health and mental health. And, uh, and, and, you know, we're starting to see that result in policy change and funding, and you, you we're finally getting the help we need uh, from states and feds and, and just the attention that, that it should be getting. Yeah, and, and it's, it's about time. I mean, we, we've, we've done everything but talk about, you know, mental health and, and, and the role it plays and, uh, you know, it, homelessness, all these things that are bad in our society, I think most of them come down to mental health. There's not one medical problem, social problem, behavioral problem that does not interact somehow with mental health or substance use. Everything. If we're talking about cancer, well, that's going to affect your mental health. If uh, and and you know, so so we need to attend to it. If we're talking about, like you said, homelessness, there's probably not an unhoused person out there that doesn't have a mental health problem that's either caused from being unhoused or contributed to the fact that they are unhoused. Uh, substance use that goes hand in hand, violence. I mean, every single thing that we can think of and talk about, uh, mental health makes it worse, contributes to it, or is a result from it. So you you mentioned the Center for uh, Violence Prevention. Is it just me, or it appears as though we've become more violent as a society? I think the last few years, it just seems like it's out of control. Are you noticing that? Is, Is that one of the things that you're noticing in, in, in a, you know, through your work in the center? You know, I, I it does seem like that. Uh, so I, absolutely. Now, when you start to look at the data and some of the violent crime data, a lot of it has, it's a, it's a little bit more nuanced, but a lot of it has gone down in the past, you know, two to three decades. Uh, but then we see other things like firearm violence has increased. And, uh, and, and then we see other things like partner violence has become, less of a private matter and people are more likely to talk about it and report it and screen for it. So a lot of it is more just we're attending to it now. And, uh, and, and because of that, it, I think it appears more so. But, but I would agree that it does seem like it. And I think that it's more nuanced. Some factors are increasing, some are decreasing. So, uh, but all in all, the violent crime does actually seem to be coming down. So, you know, coming out of COVID, uh, I, I feel like we went to work, we went back to work kind of early. We were considered a, 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 a an vital, whatever they called it, uh, business. And, and it, I felt like we were only out for a couple of months and straight back into the office. And it was like so welcoming. I can't imagine these people that have been out two, two and a half years. T- talk about not only the impact on their mental health, but this, I noticed the students, the it, it doesn't matter when they were a student during that process. Like some lost their senior year. Uh, others were transitioning to from sixth grade to high school. Talk about some of the things you've seen that, that have been kind of noticeable patterns on, on mental health coming out of, uh, coming out of COVID. 
you know, I'll, I'll jump ahead a second and I, I promise to come back here. But one of the things that I always say is the final wave of COVID, whatever it is, is going to be mental health. And it's going, you know, we've asked kids, adults, everyone to go through a whole lot the past few years. Like kids, my, my kids were both in high school. One finished out her, you know, taken out of her junior year, finished her senior year and in, in what everyone else experienced in COVID. And uh, and it was tough. It was hard. And these, I, I think there's going to be a mental health impact on this generation for years to come. I, I do think most will catch up. Uh, you know, we're resilient as humans, as people, but some of the less fortunate will not. And oftentimes it's, it's what we see more reflective of society. It's the, it's marginalized groups. It's harder to catch up with, with those kids. And I think we're going to see that. And, and, you know, for, again, uh, you know, another decade or so to come. Uh, and I'll say another silver lining of, of COVID is that we realized how much our social interactions matter. Like you mentioned coming back to the office, we had a similar thing with, with my group. It was two to three months, and I had to get back. I, you know, I, I think the silver lining for me was realize that I'm not the misanthrope that I thought I was, that I actually do like people, yeah. and, and I need to be around people. And, uh, and you know, I also kind of like work yeah. <laughs> and I need to yeah. work. I saw there was, there's this one meme that everyone, all of the listeners have probably seen. It's, it's been around for a long time, but it's basically a, a deserted house in the middle of like this beautiful Island. And it says, could you live here for one year without your cell phone, without anyone else, just on this beautiful Island with a nice house and all the amenities for $10 million. And I think prior to COVID, my answer was an immediate, yes, of course, that's a stupid question. But man, after like six months in COVID, I was like, I, I think I'd give up to $10 million. I need people. Yeah. No, I, I'm not the introvert I thought I was. <laughs> exactly. So related to that, we, uh, uh, my team and I just got a grant to look at the long-term effects of, of COVID, uh, especially COVID-induced stress and isolation and the economic perils associated with it. And, and we're wanting to look at uh, the long-term effects of the school disruptions and this, this social isolation. So we actually had a study that was uh, looking at seventh graders uh, in Houston, Fort Bend area who had a healthy relation, got a healthy relationship program, by the way, many of which, uh, many of the schools here in uh, Clear Lake are receiving this healthy relationship program. And we want to, following them to see if, if that relationship program worked. But it just so happened that we did this in 2018, a couple of years before the pandemic. Uh -huh. So we serendipitously had all this pre-pandemic mental health, uh, you know, psychological, substance use, all these really cool data, this, these really neat variables that now we can look and see if COVID itself had an impact on these variables. So. We got a grant from the National Institute of Mental Health to follow these kids who are hardly kids now. They're most of them are about 18. And so we'll follow them till a few years post high school. So we'll know from seventh grade to three years post high school how they're doing and how COVID affected them. So it'll be the same kids. Same kids. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then I wonder if you could do something with seventh graders now and kind of tie that in maybe. It's actually a really smart uh, idea that we, you know, should write another grant, honestly, to look at that sort of the cohort differences between yeah. seventh grade to a couple years post high school, you know, post COVID versus the sample who had to live through COVID. 
which does worry me though. I mean, if you look at our area, we've, we've had to be very resilient and thankfully we are here in this Houston, Clear Lake, Galveston area. Uh, we've been asked to be resilient about a lot, you know, not only the pandemic, but freeze and, and uh, hurricanes and flooding. And uh, I mean, even sort of like the, the Travis Scott thing that happened. I mean, yeah. there just seems to be tragedy after tragedy. Exactly. So we've got the holidays coming up. And for some people, best time of the year. For a lot of other people, not so much. We call it what the blue, the blue, uh, the blue holidays. Yeah, winter blues, yeah. seasonal blues, holiday blues. Yeah. T- t- talk to me about what causes it around this time, and, and what we should be looking for in our loved ones, really, because you know, it, people can people can hide that pretty good sometimes. Yeah, you know, and and I think that that makes it especially difficult in terms of what you said about hiding it is that it's supposed to be this this you know wonderful time of the year right and and so that has the impact that now not only are we sad or we have the blues but now we're expected to be happy and and everything's wonderful so i think it's it's much more difficult to be sad you're not allowed to be sad sort of in this time of year so so going back to it you know there's a couple different you know there's there's winter blues which is going to be just more like a funk like you you know you're just not feeling it you're uh, more stressed than usual, maybe sleep a little longer than usual, maybe down, but it's really not affecting your day-to-day life. So there's that, and that's that's something we, we definitely need to attend to and, and be mindful of. And we see that with people who maybe have lost a loved one during this time period. It's difficult, especially a recent loss, maybe a first Christmas without that person. Then we have things that are more seasonal, like uh, what your listeners may be aware of is SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder. And that is where folks uh, start to, you know, their their melatonin is not regulated enough because of the shorter days. And by the way, I think we need a podcast on the foolishness of daylight saving signs. We just need to. I don't disagree. We need to get rid of it. Anyway, <laughs> that's for another another time. But uh, yeah, it's you know the shorter daytime hours, uh, less exposure to light in the outdoors. And we see a real seasonal pattern with depression where it's almost like some people hibernate, so to speak, where, you know, they, they need to sleep more, social withdrawal, that crave more carbohydrates, uh, you, you know, put on put on more weight. And uh, and then it really starts to affect their day to day life. So that's more than winter blues. This is, you know, actually getting in the way of being a productive uh, husband or wife or parent or, uh, you know, out in the workforce or just having fun. Yeah. So what do we do for those family members if we're noticing those things? I mean, you can't force somebody to, you know, maybe. So actually, I'm glad you said that. Certainly you can't force anyone. But one of my favorite treatments for depression is what we call behavioral activation. And sometimes that is what it means is forcing yourself to do something that you used to be interested in. Because oftentimes what depression does is is it has this really insidious pattern where you're depressed, so you don't do stuff that you like to do. And because you don't do stuff you like to do, you're not reinforced. You're not, you know, there's nothing to combat the depression. So if we can kind of trick the body and the mind and say, force you to do that thing you used to like to do, even if you don't want to do it, even if you have zero interest in it, if we could trick you, and to do that, and then you start to remember, I do kind of like doing this. I, I do want to do this and look forward to it. Well, you can't ha- be uh, having a good time and depressed at the same time. It's not possible. So we do kind of force that on folks. Uh, 
but back to your to your question on on what do we do for those families i i think first and foremost is being supportive and being someone there that they can talk to so it's not just when they're you know seasonally depressed or when something bad happens it's just being that person and that relationship partner whatever the relationship is that they can open up to you and be someone to talk to i uh, and, and then as an outside observer being mindful of the things of of what depression looks like or what being in a funk looks like and and you know that might be again not doing stuff you used to enjoy it might mean sleeping longer it might mean crying a lot I might be talking negatively about yourself. Now, that all being said, I also want to tell the listeners that it's okay to not be okay sometimes. It's mm -hmm. okay to be in a funk. You know, that that's sometimes part of life as well. Now, when I start to worry about it is that when it gets and impacts your day-to-day -day life and your relationships and all that. But it is okay to not be okay. And it's it's hard right now. We're, yeah. There's a lot of us that are going to be sad, and that's okay. You know, we just want to also get you better. Yeah, and the holidays kind of remind me of social media. So the holidays, everything's supposed to be good, joyous. Social media, everybody's putting their best foot forward. And no, nobody goes on there and posts about the bad stuff. So th these people get this false sense of, oh, these people are living better, a better life than I am. And how, how has social media kind of changed the way, well, how it's affected our mental health? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I've never, I've never heard it compared to that, but it is similar, right? Like, when you actually look at holiday dinners and holidays, they're, you know, before the fact and after the fact, they're great. I love it. I love family. But if you actually interviewed people during the family dinner or the event, it's typically a lot of, lot of bad times yeah. and, and, uh, uh, which is okay, you know, but it, but it's a lot, it's, it's stressful. And so I, I think that comparison to social media is, is apt. Um, to social media itself, you know, the, the research is a bit mixed on uh, on how it's affected our mental health and our social health. I think in a lot of areas, and for a lot of people, it has actually improved it. You know, uh, uh, things like it was very protective for kids during COVID because, you know, imagine if it was 19, I don't know, 19, I'll date myself. When I was in high school in 1996, and that exact same thing happened. I wouldn't have been able to talk to my friends except for landlines. And, and then I would have been competing with that landline with my brother and two oh, yeah. sisters. And, and so this way they got to FaceTime and they got to pretty much hang out with their friends as usual, as normal. So it was a bit protective for things like COVID and, and schooling, even as disastrous as, as, as it was sometimes they were able to continue schooling and, and just to, in some regard. Uh, but, but in terms of the, you know, like the, Com comparison and and looking like everyone is having a good time all the time and you're not that is deflating i mean it, it's defeating where you look at someone and they're you know you see one friend is in i don't know the caribbean this week and another friend's in europe the next week it might be their only trip that year but now you're thinking they're just everyone's always yeah. gone doing something cool and here i am just you know my worthless self doing this and so yeah it can feed the depression especially if you're already depressed. I think that's where it's important is uh, if, if you're already negative and you're already feeling lousy, that's going to be stuff that just confirms that. Yeah. And so I kind of a sense of how we've mental health, you dated yourself. I'll date myself. I was in high school in 89. 
no such thing as mental health. Nobody knew what that meant. The 2000s, it got a little better. But I think right now, I, I on the radio, I heard a, a it was a, a poll or some research being done. And it, I think it was like young to mid, mid-aged people. And it was like, I think the gist of it was that would you date somebody if if they had a therapist? And overwhelmingly, it was yes. It was seen as a positive. It was seen as self-improvement. And I think that's remarkable to think 10 years back, 20 years back, how far this, this issue has come. Uh, One million percent. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I did realize that I incorrectly dated myself in, in, in favor of me. It was actually in high school in 92. Before I graduated, not 96, I was in college. So <laughs> I'm older than even I thought. You had a good time. You uh, yeah, remember. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I remember I, I went to a psychologist when I was in grad school and I didn't tell anyone. I kept it completely quiet because I thought it, and that was, you know, only 20 years ago. Yeah. And now I wouldn't care. I'd tell everyone and anyone who wanted to listen. Yeah. And, it, and what I tell my patients or people who are thinking about psychologists or therapists is, you know, that I really think that we should have a, a therapist just as we have a, a general practitioner. I mean, it, 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 let's protect ourselves. And in fact, I think if we had a therapist, we'd be much less likely to need a general practitioner. So, you know, the, the prevention is, is key and mental health is prevention. Yeah. And so are you still practicing? I am. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you still see patients? I still do see patients. Okay. Yeah. That, that, must be, that, that must be the rewarding part of the job. You know what it is, you know, a lot of people will talk about how do you not bring this home with you and, and it must be terribly sad. And sometimes it is. I mean, some we, we talk to people that have had experience really bad stuff and, and going through tough times. But I think the flip side of that is that you get to see people improve and, and do better. And, and that's something that I, I choose to take home with me. And, yeah. you know, some of my favorite clients to treat, uh, I, I, Prior to taking this job with nursing, I was in the uh, OB-GYN department where uh, women who had postpartum depression, and it's very similar to what we were talking about with the holidays, is that, you know, you're supposed to be happy, it's supposed to be a great time, you have the baby, everyone's really focused on you and the baby, and then after a week, everyone leaves and you're alone. And it's hard work. (laughs) And it's tough, and you're not going back to work, likely, you're staying home a little longer, everyone's kind of understandably kind of deserted you and you're stuck with this baby 24 hours a day seven days a week and you feel guilty if you want to spend one second away from this baby and so then that combined you know everything's terrible and so my my first assignment is first i tell every postpartum woman you know this is perfectly normal i don't think you're going to hurt the baby you're not going to uh you're just sad and it's it's a terrible time for you right now and you feel guilty because you're sad and it's a terrible time for you right now so next time I see you, you're going to be better, and this is the way you're going to do it. I'm forcing you to go on a date. I'm forcing you to do something by yourself without the baby. I don't care how it happens. If you have zero money, you'll trade cleaning for babysitting, whatever it takes. But you're going to spend some time by yourself and away from the baby. Yeah, my wife and I realized real quick it's not all fun and games having babies. No. No, in fact, what, what I always say, I, I totally agree with you. What I always say, and I say this to my kids as well, is, when they were growing up, my two favorite times of the day was seeing them and leaving them. I mean, it was I couldn't wait to go to work some days. I'll bet. Anyway, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this.